Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to Dose Nation. I'm your host, Jay Kettle, and thank you for joining us as always. With me here, as always, is uh, founder of DoseNation.com and author of Psychedelic Information Theory, James Kent. James, how are you? I'm doing well today. It should be a fun show. We don't have a guest today, so we're going to do an old-fashioned Dose Nation uh, news roundup where we're just going to hit a bunch of the headlines from this week and give you some of our comments, insights, uh, outrage, witty comments, etc. 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 Log roll. What's going on with you this week, Jake? How's um, how's that Archbishop of Newark, New Jersey, doing? The Archbishop of Newark. Why is there has, has there been some uh, news? I think he was under scrutiny this week for um, I don't know, like building like a half million dollar mansion, and they weren't exactly sure where all the money came from. Really? Huh? Yeah. There was there was some good. There was. Some oh good... yeah. Okay. Here we go. Here we go. Controversy over New York. Or okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 This th- this was actually in the uh, in the Times. I think. Yeah, um, he he's under fire for the five hundred thousand dollar edition being uh, added to his weekend house in the woods of Pittstown. Well, there's a real example of humility for you being a, a humble servant of the Lord. Yeah, but, but I guess he's a job creator, though, right? Yeah, you know, but you know, as you get higher up in the church, you get certain uh, perks. You know, it's like it's like a benefits packages, I guess. Do they really make that much in salary? Um, it's, see, that I'm not sure about. I, I, I don't know. I don't know how much money they make, uh, in salary, to be honest with you. I don't know how much a cardinal makes in salary. See, because... Well, it bec- seems like, it seems like New Jersey is sort of ripe with corruption. Well, I think that's just indicative of, of, of the state or of the area. New York has a lot of corruption, too. That's the other thing. Um, so it might just, It's not you a know, contest between New York and New Jersey. <laughs> what? Corruption is a contest yeah. between New York and New Jersey. Oh, yeah, right. Um, no, yeah, well, yeah, Christie and the uh, governor or the, and the mayor of New York City. Why did you shut down the bridge? Anyway. Um, yeah, the whole Chris Christie thing is pretty crazy. Yeah, I don't even want to go into that. But, um, uh, you know, th- the other thing is that, sure, they're his, but, but and they're adding a $500,000 addition. But when he dies, it's not like that goes to his family. It goes to the next cardinal of so it's part of the archbishop's estate it belongs right, to the church right. it's not his private so, okay estate. so it's like monticello or something exactly basically what it is is it's is it's like it's kind of like the white house like 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 the pope lives in the papal apartment right mm-hmm. but how many popes have lived in the papal apartment <laughs> you know what i mean sure it's like you're 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 renting it for a time or you're you're it's yours for a time while you hold that position while you hold that seat while you're so enthroned. This, so what you're saying is this is a, just a gotcha story? This is just kind of a story of some of... So $500,000, when you think about it, for an addition onto a large house really isn't that much money, especially if you figure the house is worth at least a couple million, if not more. And the Diocese of Newark is pretty old, so you have to consider that it's probably an older building. It's going to cost more money to add an addition onto it. If you're keeping, you know... I you know I mean, I, 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 I'm making a few assumptions, but... The Diocese of Newark is an older diocese, so. All right, so let's move on to the next story. Did you want it? We you wanted to talk a little bit about the Russian Orthodox Church. Yeah, and, and the reason I going on with the Sochi games. So yeah, I'll let you talk about that because a there's a lot of this kind of anti anti gay 
um, stuff going on in Sochi. And and w- there was an article that I read in Mother Jones, um, and I thought it was really, really interesting. Um, and it said how U.S. evangelicals helped create Russia's anti-gay movement. Meet the Fox News producers, the nightclub uh, Impresario, if I'm pronouncing Impresario. that correctly. Uh, thank you, James. And the oligarchs who teamed up to write inequality into law. And believe it or not, there are a lot of Americans on that side of the equation. So there are certain organizations and there are certain institutions um, that both Russian um, Orthodox philanthropists and archpriests and so on have connections to, um, and there are Americans that have connections to these organizations as well. And there's also American evangelicals and Russian um, Orthodox, you know, members of the Russian Orthodox Church who are directly connected with each other. For example, Alan Carlson, who's the who's the co-founder of WCF and the president of the Howard Center. Uh, he's he has an institutional link with um, uh, I, I, these these Russian names can be hard to pronounce. Anatoly Antonov, I think is how you pronounce sure. that. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, he, he was the co-founder of the WCF, and he's, he's a sociology professor at Moscow University. What is the WCF? Uh, um, I think it's the World. Um, oh Lord, uh, what is it? Well, World Congress of Families. Yeah. Oh, the World Congress of Families. I so it's believe... a quasi-religious morality foundation. Yeah, uh, I mean, you know, it's 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 this foundation where where you know the preserving the family. Uh huh. You know. Okay. You know, you know, everything is about the so preservation like, of the it family. It sounds like it's double speak for anti-gay. Right. It's the preservation of traditional values of the family. Uh huh. Okay. So to speak. Okay. Great. So, except for like. Taking mistresses and stuff like that. But well, we don't talk. But, but we, we, James, we don't talk about that. We don't talk about that. Kind All right. Of stuff. So these, so these, <laughs> these, these two people. One of them is a one of them is a Russian professor, and another one. The other is... one is the president of the Howard Center. Uh, you know, and he's connected to, now. The pre, now Alan Carlson is connected to uh, Larry Jacobs, who is the WCF managing director. I'm just going to abbreviate because it's hard to mm-hmm. continue to say the same thing over and over and over again. And uh, he has an institutional link with Alexei Komov, who is uh, a rep- who is a WCF representative in Russia. Now he has institution uh, institutional connections with uh, the Patriarchs Commission on the Family um, and Protection of Motherhood and Children. He has um, institutional links with Family Policy RU. He has institutional links with Safeguard, uh, Safe Internet League. He has, and he also has, has institutional links um, with the. Uh, let's see here, um, with Saint, with the Saint Basil the, the Great Charitable Foundation, at least according to the info chart that I'm looking at that was provided by Mother Jones. And the same people that have these institutional links are um, Natalie. U- Kunina, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, she's the head of the Sanctity um, of Motherhood <laughs> program, and uh, you know these so people. So it sounds are, like these sounds like these people are all they're all kind of of these sort of like these these quasi strong family foundation associations, right? And like, really, what what you find is that when it comes to so now. 
Elena Mislina is was the state Duma sponsor of both anti-gay laws, right? Right. Now, Larry Jacobs, who is the WCF uh, – I, I, I kept saying WFC. It's WCF, excuse me, It's who is the WCF managing director, right? He has a connection with her, and she has a connection to the Duma Committee on Family, Women, and Children. And that, you know, and, if, and they have the, then there's a connection with the co- with the co-founder of uh, the of the WCF. It's an institutional link, obviously. But no, so it would be correct to say that the WCF basically raises money through membership to support anti-gay legislation around not only the country but the world. Yeah, and what I'm, and I think that what we're that, that what we're seeing here and what we're finding here, and you can go look this up, and and literally the article is titled, and I and, and I would like to give credit to the to the author as well, um, Hannah Le, uh, Leventova. Um, it's it's titled "How U.S. Evangelicals Helped Create Russia's Anti-Gay Movement," and um, it's 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 really interesting and I think quite compelling because if you think about it, we have a pretty strong anti-gay movement in the United States and we have they they may not categorize it as such but we do have one it's strong it has financial power it has political power um, and it comes basically out of the evangelical right wing exactly and not that, that that's the only place it's coming from but that's not the only the loudest place. they they just have the most vocal about it right and uh well very vocal mind you and um you know, I you know, and I I would say that the evangelicals are probably more vocal on uh, on on uh, gay marriage, and I would say the Catholic Church is probably more vocal on and abortion. And now now this article is saying that they've kind of exported that model. Yeah, and and the thing is, is that is they've been exporting that model to different parts of the world, uh, like South America, where there's a little competition. I mean, Catholicism is kind of winning because it's it, it can blend with the folk religion a little more than evangelicalism can. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, in South America, you have uh, they're they're exporting these ideologies to South America. They're exporting them to Russia, um, and here they're showing the direct connections between the Americans and the Russians involved in this sort of exportation process of this ideology, and how it's really influencing, um, you know, po- Russian policy. And it, and it's also in turn it's 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 influencing the international community because it's 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 shaping the way Russia it's it's shaping Russia's perception of 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 future policy based you know on these issues. Yeah, it seems that Russia is becoming one of the most intolerant places in the world. I mean, their immigration policy, their their views of other countries, um, they've got kind of a superiority complex. They don't, you know, they've got this very strong anti-gay policy. Uh, it's it's weird. I mean, considering that it's, you know, the birthplace of modern communism, not the birthplace, but the incubation bed, um, where everything was supposed to be liberal and free, not so much. <laughs> it's swinging back <laughs> towards the totalitarian. I mean, it's very weird. Uh, uh, I think... I'm wondering if this exportation of an anti-gay agenda cloaked as strong family values is purely a morality thing, or is this something that some political strategist has realized is a powerful wedge issue 
and you can use it to trim another five to seven percent of the population in your favor if you apply it globally to the entire population. Well, the other thing I think is, is it is it that cynical or is I, there really people who are passionate about keeping, you know, gay rights down? I don't know if it's that cynical. And there are many good good things about the Russian Orthodox Church. I will say that. Um but what I have found is that is that there are there there, there is a heavy connection between the Russian Orth- between the Russian Orthodox Church in Russia um and the Russian state. Specifically right. the state of Vladimir Putin. Sure. Um, yeah. Who and what what is what has happened in Russia? And I watched an RT documentary about this, and I did some reading. I um, some reading on it is that the state is giving back a lot of the land to to the Russian Orthodox Church, and you know Vladimir Putin is going to services, and he's being blessed by the patriarch, and all this other kind of stuff. And they have meetings together, and he's attended synods of bishops, and this kind of stuff. And you're beginning to see, or at least in my opinion, I think that what we're, we are beginning to see in Russia is a is a puppet uh, church. No, not a not a puppet church, but a but a but a fusion of the state and the church again, which is which. I mean, you know, the church was heavily heavily connected with the czar, obviously, um, in the same way that the Anglican Church is connected with um, the monarchy of England. So, is that an allo? Theocarchy. <laughs> I, I, I don't want to get into political science terms, so please. That's an, but... interesting, that's an interesting point, and I think this is the reason why Pussy Riot was thrown in jail, because they went into a Rome, uh, an Eastern Orthodox Church. And a Russian started, Orthodox Church. A Russian Orthodox Church yeah. and started protesting Vladimir Putin, and uh, they were arrested for that. And that's, that's right. basically their yeah. story. I mean, that's they were protesting that very thing. Or at least to poking fun at it, if not protesting it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and and <clears throat> to me, I mean, my my, and I mean, I hate to say it, but but when I've seen the videos of 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 the patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church, you know, sitting with 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 Putin, there's almost this look of like intense fear and kind of like, <laughs> no, no, I, I'm not joking. If you look at the, some of these videos yourself. It's I like, think that's the way most people look when it's they're like, sitting around. <laughs> it's just like this look of like, if I don't do what this man tells me to do, I am going to not have my 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 seat very long. Yeah, he's going to be you disappearized. Know? Yeah, you know, that's... so so it was just kind of interesting that 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 way. You know, it was it, you know, I mean, it was it was, it was kind of comedic, but you know, um, and you know, but but it's comedic, but at the same time, is it true? You know, maybe. I don't know. What do you think? Um, I think I think that everybody who lives in Russia proper is pretty much under Vladimir Putin's thumb, and uh, he's you know uh, it's funny. I watch I'm watching House of Cards. Or I just finished watching House of Cards season two, and um, it's built around this character Frank Underwood, played by Kevin Spacey, who's just this very uh, just hardcore Machiavellian manipulator who will do basically anything to get his way and uh, uh, has everybody kind of wiggling under his thumb. And it seems like it's fiction here in America because American politicians don't have those that kind of chutzpah. I mean, they don't have that kind of follow-through because they realize that there are checks and balances and apparatuses that will take them out of power if they start to abuse it or are found out. Like the press will expose them. 
or their peers will expose them or they, you know, the people will expose them and they will become, um, you know, impeached or taken out of office or arrested. Right. And they lose their power. Vladimir Putin doesn't have that explicit threat in abusing his power. No, nobody is going to overthrow him or upset him. So he can just, you know, put the thumb press down on anybody in that country. And as you can see, even countries close by like Syria and Ukraine and these these other countries that are basically fighting his proxy wars right now uh, because he's a, you know, he's very much in the old school Soviet empire power uh, consolidation phase. You know, he was he spent the last decade of his political career rising to the top of Russia's food chain. And now he wants all of Eastern Europe back. Well, uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't go that far. I would go that far. Uh, Would you? Yeah. I mean, I mean, it is a possibility. (laughs) Actually, there was there was a there, there, there was a video that um, that 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 I that I thought was great. There was there was a reporter uh, do you remember when when we were putting up that uh, NATO defense missile shield? Yeah. Um, in response, we said for Iran, and uh, somebody interviewed Vladimir, uh, Vladimir Putin, and they said, uh, "Do you believe that uh, that they're putting it up against Iran?" And and literally, he laughed in the guy's face. He said, "He said, oh, he see, he said, he said, you're funny." He said, "You know," he said, "He said you're really funny." He said, "You're really funny." He said, "He said thank you." He said, "Thank you, thank God." He said, "You know." Because uh, I'm paraphrasing, he said, "At least I can go home to you know." He said, "It's the end of the day. At least I can go home in a good mood." He said, "What a jo-. he said, what a joke." <laughs> <laughs> Basically saying that, like you know, look, like they they erected it for, for against me. Right. They erected it against us, against the Russians. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a, he's basically saying funny cover story. Right, yeah, like you know, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, great, great, great cover story. Well, guess what? I don't buy it, you know. <laughs> uh, so, so uh, yeah, the Russian he, he, Olympics. he's he's very privy. But the thing is, is that I really don't know if if he wants to take the whole of Eastern Europe. And I mean, as far as the Russian Olympics go, I mean, well, here's here's the thing: is the, the only reason people are rioting in the Ukraine right now is because Vladimir Putin can't do anything about it because the Russian Olympics are still going. He would send troops into the Ukraine to stop that immediately if it would not be a PR nightmare for him just because the Olympics are happening right now. And the people in the Ukraine know that. So there is so much unrest in the Ukraine right now. And, um, the only reason Bashar al-Assad is still in power in Syria is because of Vladimir Putin's support, his explicit support in money, weapons, um, fuel, armor, anything Though, he needs. I mean, I mean, and and look, I'm not trying to 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 defend Putin here, but he did say, I mean, in a speech, he said, "Look," he said, "I mean, as far as the chemical weapons thing and all that," he said, "Look," he says. He says, I, "This is not a witch burning," you know. To paraphrase, I mean, he's like, "Look, there, we have international law, we have international courts, we have well, international yeah, of codes." Course. I mean, he even he could not defend Assad as a stockpiler of chemical weapons because that gives the United States the authority, or at least the moral authority, according to Barack Obama, to to bomb the bejesus out of him. I mean, to bomb him back to the Stone Age. 
And that's what we <laughs> like were about they did to in do. Libya. I mean, they were going to pull the trigger. I mean, and that's that's what the whole standoff was. And again, it is it is a proxy war. It's a proxy war between you know NATO and Russia. Anybody feel like the like Cold Trump War is still going on? Yeah, it's it's, it's definitely <laughs> or is that just me? Feeling like that. Like no, um, no, really I, though. I mean, to 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 a certain degree, it's almost like there there is a struggle for power. Um, you know, th- because now that Russia is becoming a power, I mean, it was a powerful country, and, and they are becoming powerful again. Uh, and so is China. Um, and it's almost like we're now fighting a new version of the Cold War, except for it's getting hot in some countries. You know. Yeah. And it's you know the war and the war in Syria is going to keep going for a long time, um, and there's uh, there are there are hot spots that are just gonna I mean I can't see them getting any better anytime soon without a whole lot of uh, fighting. There's just going to be a lot of fighting and war going on, especially in Eastern Europe and the Middle East, uh, and then maybe going all the way out to like Pakistan and India. And I don't see it going into Southeast Asia, and I don't see China getting into another war. I don't know who's going to threaten China. I mean, this whole thing with Taiwan is really the biggest international issue, and um, <clears throat> I don't think the Chinese want to go to war over t- control of Taiwan. No, I don't think so either. Because I, I mean, anybody, I mean, I don't think anybody wants to. It's albeit our, our 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 country may not be in the greatest shape, but it's 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 still undeniable that we have the biggest military in the world. Well, yeah, and there's lots of other things. I mean, our relationship with China is very complex. Right. We have a trading. You know, we have a trade partnership with them. We have lots. China of is in the middle of playing the long game right now. I mean, if you look at it from a global geopolitical strategy. They are playing the long game. They are in a very long industrializing phase where they are basically ramping up the entire nation to a different standard of living. And it's taking many, many decades because they have many, you know, they've got billions, they've got a a billion people. I can't remember how many, but it's, it's a lot. And, um, it's it's very slow, but their progress is steady, and they're looking to the deep future. I think, whereas most of the world, that's not China, is just looking down the next decade for the short term gain. I mean, I think that, that uh, some some um, some European Union member countries are looking long term. I would say yeah, I, think, Nor- I would say I Norway North, is looking long term. Northern Europe, Northern Europe. Yes, yeah. Northern Europe is looking long term. They're a little more long-term. isolationist, and they're a little bit more um, protective, protectionist. They're small countries with a small population, and they have good man- good population management. Yes, which means they keep their populations low. They can keep their services for their entire country cheap. They're really good at innovating and being thrifty. Uh, they've got a you know kind of an eye for designing. And um, you know, making things work uh, simply. I mean, I really do believe that they will make uh, that, that that those that those will be the countries that make the real headway innovations in the future in science and technology are going to be the Northern European countries and and some of the uh, Central European countries like Germany, Switzerland, France. Yeah, I think um, you know, I think Japan and China are going to continue making innovations. India definitely. Um, and the reason I say Northern Europe is because, like you said, they're isolated, and they and like I said, they they have a they 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 do put a lot of funding towards science and technology, um, to 
to basically improve and try to make their economies more efficient. Right. Yeah. And you go to, I mean, we think in America, we live in the modern world. You go to someplace like Copenhagen. And it's just and totally everything different. everything is so much more integrated there. I mean, you think Tokyo is like the future and Tokyo is like the super really consumer future. But, you know, there are places in Northern Europe that are like, like the like the techno utopia future where uh, you know everything is clean and everything works and all the cars are electric and well uh... what's funny is that is it <laughs> is that it, is that side by side with those things are shops that are hundreds of years old that are still running and still in operation that still have the original furniture in them yeah. do you know what i mean and that's yep, and that's yep. what i love is that they they recognize and keep their heritage while making these innovations you know Mm-hmm. They don't. They like, for example, in Norway, the Sami people of the north and in Sweden, Finland, that area, the, the, they live, I think, past the Arctic Circle. Yeah, they're allowed to keep their heritage. They they're not they're they're not messed with. They're not forced off their land. They're not in poverty. They're not, you know, they don't. You, no, they they were left alone. They're they're able to do what you know they they do what they have to do. I mean, certain things affect them in the modern world, like overfishing and things like that. But, um, you know, that population is taken care of. They take care of themselves. The population in the South takes care of themselves. I mean, it's a very kind of contained. And I and I also learned some of this through speaking with a with with a friend from Norway uh, who who is a southern Sami. And he said it's you know, he said, really, he said, you know, it's 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 not a terrible place to live. He said it really isn't. And yeah, uh, the whole Arctic Circle living thing is weird to me. I uh, it's I cold as if, hell, though. I don't know if I could be living in a place that that's that's that cold and gets that dark for that that long and that <laughs> dark in the winter. Yeah, but um, but aren't you aren't you for, aren't your ancestors from that part of the the world like like Norway? Um. Yeah, I guess I'm more sort of just. Um, Germanic. I'm, like, I'm more Germanic, Franco, Anglo. Oh, kind of like the like Irish, a, yeah, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. Northern American, I mean, Northern European mutt mix. And I've got a little bit of, um, I think it's Comanche Indian from Oklahoma in it. Are you from the Alamene tribe of uh, of no, of, no? Of, I've got I do have some Native American in 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 my ancestry, and it's not much, but it's enough that it gets brought up in my family every once in a while and, and trot it out. So, just on a side note, I which... think it's my great grandmother. My great great grandmother was um, full, and my great grandmother was half Comanche Indian. Just on a side, which oh, makes Comanche? me like one thirty second. I'm not sure. Comanche I, I, warriors I actually, were known. That's, that's somebody would have to do more research than me um, back in my family tree because I haven't really followed my family roots back to Oklahoma, which is where both my mother and father come from. Before I can trace my mother back to um, Hempstead, New Jersey, which is where the second wave of ships following the Santa Nina and Pinta Maria landed when they came. To, wow, so you're uh, here early. So. So yeah, I can trace my roots all the way back to those first wave of Puritan immigrants landing in New Jersey, and and the first the first town they founded was Hempstead, <laughs> which is I guess where you grow all the hemp. Most um, most of my ancestors were uh, you know members of the Catholic clergy or some kind of you know, uh, you know, uh, they were they they had estates and things like that, and that was basically what they did. They were they were just lower. <laughs> they they weren't they they weren't the founders of, of of anything great. I don't think. 
Well, yeah. So, but um, um, but yeah. So I've been I've sort of my my northern European lineage has sort of gotten jumbled and mixed but, around. But you know, I, think, what? I, I actually, think looking back on it, I thought I was Anglo, but it turns out I'm more Irish and German than anything. I want to comment on that quickly because I think that this is an interesting subject. Um, one of the things about European heritage is that what we don't realize is that places in places like Germany and places like Gaul. Um, you know, I'm using the old terms, Germania, Gaul, Britannia, um, places like that, Mm -hmm. um, that there were tribes that lived in Europe and that, and that actually that, that people would hail from certain tribes and that these tribes inhabited specific regions or they moved through specific regions of the Rhine and they had you know okay they had they had they had they had territorial wars and things like that obviously but there were these tribes and and I, and, and 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 just to name a couple um you know just 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 for just just for the sake of it these are these are later tribes um but you know you had the franks you had the saxons you had the alemanni you had the balts um you had uh the Ostrogoths, you had the Vandals, the Huns. I mean, all of these tribes were specific ethnic groups. And that kind of got lost, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it, and it, I sort of if I identify with any kind of pre civilization tribal group, it would be that that sort of mix of like I mean, for characters. example, like I mean you like like I mean you 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 very well could be, and I mean and I'm not saying that this is not this is impossible, but you very well could be Icene, or you could be uh, Dorini, or you could be um, Lingione, so you could be. And I think you know, probably within the Valini or Veneti. In the next 10 or 20 years, if widespread genomic testing becomes popular, I would be able to completely localize exactly where you know, my family came from um, down different lines. Yeah, but, you know, and, and I think that that's fascinating. You be, but, you know, it's funny because in America, everybody has a story that's similar to this. It's like we sort of lost our – our. I mean maybe you can trace your family back to to Italy, I don't know, all the, all the way back to, the, to Rome. I don't know how far back it goes. But a lot of us in America, we can make it back, you know, a few generations, and then it goes back to the old country, and it's like, well, we don't know. It's a big – it's a big question mark. It's easier point. for recent immigrants, I would say. People who are like first or second generation immigrants, it's much easier for them to trace their lineage than it would be for a fourth or fifth generation immigrant. Mm-hmm. Because the line- because the records are fresh, you know what I mean? Like yeah. if your grandmother emigrated from, let's say, I don't know, just let's say from Germany, her birth record would be more available to you than let's say – uh um you know let's say your entire family left germany in 1647 right then there's not going to be much of a record of them you see what i'm saying yeah and the, the thing is is that it's it's such a weird thing is like you track you trace your maternal lineage and your paternal lineage and you know the trees kind of start branching out the farther back you get you realize you you come from you know hundreds of different families and not only that, but 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 sometimes what you find is that there's actually cross sections between your paternal and maternal line as you go further oh, back. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's common. You find you find the trees kind of tree branches kind of reintertwine after a few generations. Right, and I mean, I think that that's one of the 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 things that a lot of people find, and they go back and they say, ah, 
you know, this family's connected and that's and that family is connected and this, you know, and uh, well, I mean, if you just if you just take a look at the royal families of Europe, all of those royal families are connected in one way or another through marriage well, they or are blood. Expl- they are explicitly or implicitly or I can't remember what it is. They are connected by choice. I mean, they were all of those royal families were bred through very careful selection. To make sure that the families were mixing properly. Yeah, I mean th- that that I mean, that's what you know. You would you, all of those royal weddings were arranged between royal families, so that royal blood would not mix with common blood. That was a very kind of strict rule of the royal grooming. Yeah, I mean, and and to marry the bastard child of a, of a oh god, <laughs> so, what a yeah, dishonor! So those family lines are all very are all very intertwined. Uh, yeah. But, but uh, I wanted to uh, I wanted to switch gears and talk a little bit. Sorry about that I took us off on that tangent. <laughs> we, no, that's fine. We we it's it's good to discuss things other than uh, than always always psychedelics all the time <laughs> or always the Catholic Church all the time. Although we did get a lot of Catholic Church in there at the beginning. Uh, I wanted to talk about this story that I saw found that um that uh people are doing uh research that so it's this is a story that i said saw just now that said research finds hallucinogens may help reduce criminal recidivism yeah i find that interesting is basically something that's really easy to study because you're tracking prisoner populations and are they released from prison do they show back up in prison do they show back up in court that's a really easy statistic to track um, from a bureaucratic standard, so it's a it's a it's a kind of weird weird way to do a hallucinogen study without actually having to give anybody hallucinogens. And what they do is they look at the recidiv they looked at the recidivist rates of certain populations of convicts, and then they scored for all other kinds of. Um, variables to make sure that they weren't, you know, getting crossovers and stuff like that. And what they found is that when all of the demographic characteristics were screened for, including age, race, employment status, and criminal histories and patterns of drug use, the one thing they found that decreased recidivism was a use of hallucinogens. And this wasn't like a therapeutically prescribed use of hallucinogens. This is just, have you used hallucinogens? And it turns out, turns out that there is a um, – it looks like there's a relationship between hallucinogen use and positive outcomes for people turning their lives around after a penitentiary experience or a penal experience. So does that mean that people who take hallucinogens uh, learn their lesson better? Well, <laughs> can I – or just become better people. I don't know, but it just—it's a—it's an interesting study because you look at—you look in the news for uh, topics about studies on hallucinogens, and so many of them have to do with getting permission to use hallucinogens or apply hallucinogens. And this is just a very, a very easy study done to make a correlation between hallucinogen use and something like um, criminal behavior. Right, and I mean, I, I, well, if you take a look at the MDMA psychotherapy, right, you know, what it comes down to is that people are able to work through the issues that they had, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, criminals, I hate to say it, but criminals have issues. 
That's why they're. I mean, that's in part why they're criminals. Right. Okay. So if you if you give them a uh, way to work through some of the issues that cause them to to commit the crime, right? You're going to have. I mean, you're going to have uh, increased recidivism. So, um, I, I don't see why why it why it would go. I mean, it's it's kind of evident. I mean, because because if you because you find because you find people break habits when they take psychedelics. Like someone says, "Oh man, uh, I don't know." Like 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 uh, here's an example of somebody I know. Right? They used to, they were a really heavy smoker, a really heavy smoker, and right. it, they coughed all the time. It was horrible for their lungs. And they and people told them, "Man, you gotta stop smoking." His doctor was like, "Look, dude, you, you know, look, man, you're 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 22 years old. Like, you are going to die at 35 if you don't quit smoking. Like, this is a serious problem. You know, two right. packs a day. It's like it's a problem." Took took a took a psychedelic. I'm not sure what it was. It might have, it may have been uh, two tabs of LSD or something like, or, or may have been some other other kind of psychedelic. And and during his trip, it changed his perception on cigarettes because he really didn't like it himself either subconsciously, and it brought them out and it brought sort of brought that out of him. And uh, he quit smoking, and he has not picked it up since because there's just something in his head that says, you know, that's that's not me. That's not that's not good for me. That's not. I can't do it anymore. So for a criminal, uh, you know, uh, whether they're penitent or not, <laughs> they're going to be faced with at least some of their issues and some of what they've done in these trips. So um, and I and I think that that alone will make them begin will at least begin the process of questioning what they've done. So the criminal re recidivism study was done by uh, Peter Hendricks at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, and he has been doing studies on uh, using psychedelics to reduce recidivism. He's also trying to get a study off the ground to see if psilocybin mushrooms can cure cocaine addiction. And using the results from the recidivism study, he thinks, or his the use of hallucinogens it helps po increase positive outcomes in terms of people who are trying to turn their life around. So if somebody's coming to a critical point where they're saying, I need to change my behaviors uh, to be more positive, apparently a therapy with hallucinogens seems to increase the likelihood that people are actually going to stick to that change and make that change uh, happen and back on old habits like addictions and cocaine use. So we were talking about using psychedelics and or hallucinogens uh, as a therapeutic agent for treating addiction in the show we just did about heroin. Um, that was more about the drug Aboga or Ibogaine. These, this is now, um, you know, using psilocybin mushrooms or uh, just psilocybin from mushrooms uh, to treat cocaine, which you know seems like an unusual form of therapy, but it. It could work. I mean, it could be something that's worth looking into. I'm always sort of skeptical about these studies because it seems counterintuitive to treat one drug addiction with another drug, especially since I have people – I mean, so what do you use to treat people who are addicted to using psilocybin mushrooms? 
Well, I mean, well, we'll see. Is there an actual mechanism of physical addiction with, within the psilocybin? <laughs> there isn't, right, but exactly. There, but there's but a bit I of have psychological. Who are who are chronic users? Who, uh, you know, when they get into the mushroom thing, they just want to do more and more and more mushrooms. Uh, and uh, it's, I'm not saying that it's a it's it's a hard addiction to beat, but there are you can have withdrawals from chronic mushroom use. You can have psychological fallout. You could have. Hmm. What's called a reintegration or grounding period, but where, I mean physical um, withdrawal symptoms. I mean, I, I mean, I can understand the psychological fallout. I wouldn't say that they were withdrawal symptoms. I would call them more like um, an inability to cope with reality without being altered. Right. So without the altered state. Yeah. So it's not a physical withdrawal symptom. It's more of a mental anguish, paralysis. Uh, I mean, it's a definite craving or want. Um, I know that after periods of psychedelic exploration, I feel that reality is far too mundane for my liking. You know, the world is somehow cooler when everything is wiggly and creeping and crawling and filled with magic and wonder. I don't know. Maybe you have to see the wonder <laughs> in the world. Without, when suddenly yeah. the world is not filled with magic and wonder and everything is um, money and rat race and taking care of responsibilities. That's not as fun. You know, as living in the uh, the synchronicity of of the flow and the magic and, you know, being right there in the, in the manic high of believing that you're the master of the, of the known universe. <laughs> yeah. But that's, but that's, that's, that's what you get though. You know, you do one drug and boom, you know, everything, man, you know, you know, you know, you know it all. So yeah, coming down from that can be very, I mean, there's, there's, there is a, a kind of a reintegration phase that can cause a very kind of deep depression. And if you want to call that a physical withdrawal, you can, but I don't think technically it's the same as a as a heroin withdrawal. It's more like a backlash. Well, I mean, it's 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 a it almost sounds like an egotistical meltdown. <laughs> no, 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 I'm not joking. I mean, that's that's sort of what it sounds like. It sounds like you're having a meltdown. Like like I've been I've been in this altered state of reality for so long that I cannot deal with the reality that's actually in front of me. Because, because that's work. Be, because that actually would require me to do something, but because I know everything, I shouldn't have to do anything because I'm already at the pinnacle of what the human can be, right? Yeah, I mean, and it's it's. Um, I don't want to get too off on this tangent about can you get addicted to hallucinogens because it seems to be a weird question. Um, predicated on what the boundaries of addiction are. But can you get into a place where you are using hallucinogens all the time and you can't stop? Yes. Do you want to call that addiction? I don't know. Technically, it's addiction, but it's definitely compulsive behavior. So you can have a compulsion towards taking psychedelics that is very hard to shake. And I know that for a fact because there's been different drugs that I've taken that I have been not having physical withdrawals for, but I haven't been able to get them out of my mind. 
Right. It's it's the it, idea that, oh, I need to go try that again mm-hmm. right now because it was so crazy. It's that kind That's of like even when I say, no, bug. I was too crazy last time. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. When the opportunity presents itself again, it's like, oh, my God, yes, I have to do that. <laughs> because, well, maybe the experience will be different this time or maybe, you know, I'll understand it better or maybe, you know, I'll just but it's it's almost like. It's almost like there's this little bug in the back of your mind where you're where it's just like, you know, you want to do it. It's like it's stimulating this little part. You know, you want to do it. Go ahead. Just just do it. You know. Right. Um, even even when you've had, you know, experiences that have that have been negative or if you've kind of t- taken yourself off down off of it um, after a long period of time. But but I mean, I, I think that that's also just habit. You know, it's kind of a habit thing. You know, you you and number one, you're used to the habit. Number two, you're very um, obviously if you're doing it habitually, you enjoy it, right? So with the habit and the enjoyment, and your brain recognizes that it as a sense of enjoyment, then you're gonna want to do it the first chance you can get, you know. Right, and you could get addicted to doing nitrous oxide. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I mean, it doesn't seem like absolutely. a drug that you would get addicted to that has withdrawal symptoms. Nitrous but... oxide is absolutely is, is is something that you can absolutely become addicted to. Yes, uh, it's like it, 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 at least psychologically, absolutely psychological. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's what I, I guess what we're talking about is that psychological addiction. Yeah, I mean, and actually, I, I would say that nitrous oxide, if anything, has an affinity. To you know, for 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 being abused because because of just the sheer intensity of the of the experience itself, how short it lasts, the convenience of it, etc. I yeah, mean, people get addicted to that intensity, and it's hard to find intense experiences like that unless you're throwing yourself out of a plane or you know you know drinking a bottle of 120 proof vodka or you know (laughs) or or, you know you know 200 different kind of intensity but i have a 200 year old story here about um a woman who crashed her car into a condo who was found to have uh 14 bags of pcp in her backpack oh man uh, you don't see pcp news every once in a while this was in uh, Stamford, Connecticut, and uh, it seems like every once in a while PCP comes in. These are what this is. You know, when you're talking about hallucinogens that can be addicting, I think PCP is a great one because you can when you get on the PCP train, you can be in on the piece. You can be shirming for weeks at a time, and that's an extreme compulsion. It's like it's like ketamine. Uh, ketamine can be used extremely compulsively over and over and over again because you don't build up a tolerance to it. Now, is it physically addicting? Do you have withdrawals? Not really, other than maybe like, you know, like I said, a mild depression, a come down. Uh, that's kind of a bummer. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's PCP is something that you don't want anybody that you know addicted to. Uh, yeah, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> uh, angel dust and PCP are the same thing, right? Yes. Yeah. Now, um, doesn't it look like metal almost? Like it's metallic type. I don't know. Like gunpowder. Yeah, it almost looks like gunpowder. Yeah. Uh, possibly. I, I depend. I don't know. I or does that not, depend I don't on the examine PCP? A lot of PCP close up. Neither do uh, I, but I mean, it just, I mean, <laughs> uh, it's, uh, don't ask me where I saw it or, or what, but it just kind of reminded me of gunpowder, and I was like, I don't, I don't know, I want to smoke that. 
you know? <laughs> um, yeah, that could definitely be um, a lot of PCP is made by amateur chemists. So that could definitely be something that has to do in the, um, in the manufacturing process. One of our chemist listeners may know why that is. So uh, we'll see. But yeah, so PCP, um, well, I always get weirded out when I see PCP in the news, especially when someone's got like 14 bags of it on them. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> that's a lot. Just, it just, uh, it's one of those things that comes and goes. And it's like the other question is like, is, is like, is like, what are you, what are you doing with 14 bags of PCP, man? Like, like where, where are you going to go with that? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I mean, are you going to sit in your condo and clean for, you know, for a couple of days or, I mean, is, I mean, is it spring cleaning and you need some kind of, uh, you know, I don't know, inspiration? I mean, what, what's, what's the, uh, what's the motivating factor there? <laughs> for, I don't know. But, you purchasing... know, it's funny. It's funny. There's not too much bath salts in the news anymore. No, I don't hear uh, about that. There's nope. not too much spice. Uh, no. Molly was back in the news this week. I guess Molly's coming back. I don't know. Whenever I see stories that saying Molly is coming back, I wonder: Did Molly ever go out of style? I don't know. Every, She's always every, been. A, Mo, Mo, Molly has always been a beautiful lady. Yeah. Every time I see news stories saying there's this new drug, Molly, I'm thinking, God, will you please quit it with the new drug, Molly? It's, it's been around em- for a long it's time. It's just MDMA. It's just MDMA. Which you can also get addicted to. I've uh, this in the in the nineties. There were a lot of people who got addicted to there. Uh, there, you know what? I'm just going to lay it out. There is an addiction potential for everything. Right. There and, is an uh, addiction potential for playing the piano. Okay, uh, I'm not kidding. There is an addiction. There is a psychological addiction for playing the piano. Okay. I guess that's true. You know, I, I mean, you could be so obsessed with playing the piano. That, that you're addicted to it and that, and that you cannot – and that if you're not around it, if you're not playing it, if you don't hear the music – All right, just, so let me know. ask you this. What would happen if you tried to treat that piano playing addiction with hallucinogens? I don't know. <laughs> Do you think you would want to play piano while you're high on LSD? I think it would. I think you'd make some really interesting music. You know, That's true. I mean, some people might make might might make something that that sounds like you know the reincarnation of Bach, and some people might make something that sounds like uh, you no, know this is, Klaus this Schultz. Is something but that uh, that uh, yeah, every once in a while you see these these things come over the internet where it's like a painter paints seven self portraits under the influence of LSD. Or a painter paints, you know, three still lifes under the influence of LSD, and you know, each one becomes progressively weirder and more abstract as as the trip goes on. Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh yeah, yeah. You know what? I, uh, there was a there was a particular artist who did a bunch of drawings of those. Well, he just did his he did he drew himself under the influence yeah. of a bunch of different drugs. But I'm talking particular about these. Well, I guess it's the same sort of experiment, but. Art is interesting is you can kind of pull off with art the ability to to do that, you know, produce something while you're high and then have it come out pretty good when you're when you when you're sober, especially if you're a good artist going into it. But from experience, I can tell you, and I'm sure other listeners may have had the same experience, 
when you like try to plan to take a psychedelic and then like produce some music or tape record yourself while you're high so you can capture all of your brilliant ideas, that is always almost never, ever, ever a good idea. <laughs> and it turns out really, really badly just because um, being on psychedelics around electronic recording devices is just a really weird thing. And it becomes, you become like, who's, who am I recording this for? I'm recording it for me. Why am I recording it for me? And it's, and it's, it's, it's really bizarre. Um, I think we need to have um, accountability outside the South. We are recording it for posterity. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 uh, that gives it a goal. That gives it an aim. It gives it a purpose. I have never had somebody say, oh yeah, I recorded this while I was really super high on LSD. And it was something that was like, like like worth listening to somehow being able to draw and being able to sit down and draw something while you're high translates really well but you know performance especially recorded performance doesn't translate at all well there's something about uh, art maybe and... live performance maybe if you're like at a drum circle or you're a really good guitarist and you're high and you're playing guitar live maybe that that might come off like you know if you're in a jam band and it's something that you do professionally i think that that could work but if if uh, you're in the studio trying to capture something, well, I mean, I really think it all really depends. Hard. All the technical details become so overwhelming. Well, it's I mean, almost impossible to give any kind of performance. Uh, yeah, I, I would agree to a degree, and and then I would also say that that I would, you know, I would agree more for. I mean, as far as the art, the artistic community. I mean, really, I mean, some some LSD art is incredible. I mean, just 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 incredible. Um, yeah, and, and it's funny. I don't know why visual art translates so well that way. I guess it's because it's a little bit more forgiving because you can actually take the time to make a, you know, make it look the way that you want to. Yeah, you can be more precise. You right? You see, because because with with music, the the technicalities kind of have to be on the spot. You know, like like let's say I, just, this is. Completely hypothetical. Completely hypothetical. Please just take this as a total hypothetical. Let's say I were to take two tabs of LSD, right? I was going to trip. And I said, you know what? I am going to play uh, one of Bach's harpsichord suites, right? Now, you know, it could, it could, it could come out terribly, just, 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 just awfully. But it could also come out really well. I mean, it depends on the person, but but when it comes to visual art, see, when you're playing box suite, all those technical details you have to sort of in real time you have to you have to process them and and right. and, and translate to, them. You have to unpack it in real time. Exactly, with art, you can unpack it in your own way. It allows it to unfold in a, in a little bit of a slower process, and I think that you can do that with music as well. But it has to sort of be your own creation. It can't you 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 can't be dealing with the technical details of somebody else's work. Oh, so if you're just spontaneously creating, that's music. what yes, that's what I'm saying. So 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 yeah, that sounds a lot like noise too. When it... <laughs> well, no, I mean it could unless you're a musician. That's the thing. Right, if you're right. if you're a musician who knows how to play their instrument, it's a different story. Yeah, that's the that's the if the, you've been the trained goal of the jam the goal of the jam band is to be able to get so high. That they can play whatever it is that they they're thinking in their minds, and still all stay in key. 
That's it. That's all you need to do. Just play whatever you're thinking, but but don't go out of key. <laughs> that's that's jazz, right? You know, the, being able to just take your instrument and express yourself uh, to the point where it's like you're dancing, you know, with your instrument. But if you leave key, then, uh, you know, the music starts to fall apart. Yeah, that is true. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, and uh, just to kind of move away, uh, just 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 on a uh, on a on on a note for uh, for for everyone out there who is a um, fan of the uh, of the Green Leaf, um, a, a Girl Scout sold a hell of a lot of cookies recently. <laughs> <laughs> That's the story we're going to go out with. I think so. Just because Girl Scout cookies. It was such a good story. It's because it was such a funny story. It was such a good story. Like. You know what? I got to give that Girl Scout a lot of credit because let the me let is, me tell you. Um, you know what? Yeah, g- just please. Was please. it in Colorado? A girl standing outside of a marijuana dispensary? Yeah, selling Girl Scout. Because I, 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 I'm, I, I'm thinking to myself, you will be a future business tycoon. <laughs> you have, you have babies. You know when they say baby steps? Literally, we got baby steps going here. So how much money did she make selling Girl Scout cookies? Do you know? No, that I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I'm not 100% sure how much she made. But it, but, but I, I believe that they cleared out her whole she stock. She cleared $8 million in one day. <laughs> no, I don't know. I don't know how much But I sold. believe that she actually sold her entire inventory. Yeah, she did sell her entire inventory. But what do you expect coming – I mean what would you expect her not to sell her inventory in front of a marijuana dispensary in Colorado? I don't know. It seems. It seems. Uh, I always think that the whole thing about the munchies is 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 overplayed, especially in in like movies and entertainment. People like smoking weed get the munchies, and they like have to rip open the bag of potato chips and stuff them in their mouths and have them go all down their shirt and stuff like that. I always think well, I have never even really gotten the nibbles. When I, I mean, I suppose maybe every once in a while I'll feel like a little bit hungry when I smoke, but I don't get like what would be called or considered the munchies. I think the most it ridiculous... It seems to me, though, that like but marijuana smokers like to enjoy themselves and have a good time. So a little girl selling Girl Scout cookies is just like something that they're like they immediately want to support, whether or not it has anything to do with the fact that they're high. <laughs> well, I mean, and and the other thing that I think that we have to consider is that um, I lost my train of thought. So there we go. Uh, that, have that's, you ever that's ripped open a bag? Of, well, I don't. I, I don't know. Yeah, no, no, no. Wait, no, no, no. The 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 the, the classic. The uh, classic um, uh, uh, munchies like movies like ha- it's like the Harold and, Harold and Kumar go to White Harold Castle. Harold Kumar, right? Yeah. yeah, we're like you know they they get really high and they like go to the go to the White Castle. They're lost on the way to the White Castle. They meet Neil Patrick Harris. What was the scene? Uh, there, there was there was one scene where Neil 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 Patrick Harris is high on mushrooms. And he he's sees like on, he's high on ecstasy, yeah. That, is it mushrooms or ecstasy? And he sees the unicorn go by. I think he's taking MDMA. Is this I'm not joke. sure, but he and he sees the the unicorn go by or whatever, <laughs> and then and, and he's talking to the DEA agent who's like a total meathead idiot. I mean, it was it was it was one of the greatest. It was it was really funny, but um, you know that's that's kind of like you know the stoner extreme of of um, of of the munchies, you know. Yeah, it's it's almost like 
to me, it seems like, uh, you know, pot more or less makes sensual experiences more enjoyable and eating is one of those sensual experiences or listening to music or watching a movie. Uh, for some reason, those, those sensual experiences have more, um, you know, more depth and pleasure to them somehow. So something like a thin mint is just like, oh, yeah, the perfect thing. <laughs> oh, man, I need a thin mint. Oh, man, this thin mint with this girl skin. Wait, wait, wait. wait. Do, do, do you want to know what would be ironic? If someone went to the dispensary to buy Girl Scout Cookie the Strain, and, and, then, <laughs> and, and like, you know, before she set up her table, and then she comes, and, and then he comes out, and, and, and the girl is actually selling the Girl Scout uh, cookies. So that's a political cartoon. Two tables lined up on the sidewalk. One says Girl Scout cookies, and it's a glass jar with buds in it. And the other one is Girl Scout cookies, an actual Girl Scout selling cookies. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Where did they come up with the name for that stream? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. That is a good. That is a good image to leave on. So we'll leave it up to your creative imagination. (laughs) Go have some Girl Scout cookies. Yeah. Go support the Girl Scouts. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. This is about the season they sell them. So actually, I mean, I got to be honest with you. Some of them are really good. Um, some of them I don't like as much, but some of them, I, I mean, some of them are really, I mean, some of them, I'm like, where did you get the combination for this? And then others, I'm just like, man, these rock. But, um, anyhow, James, any final comments for today's show? Um, no, just that, uh, people should, uh, you know, enjoy their Girl Scout cookies for the week. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> Enjoy your Girl Scout cookie and cookies. Yeah. Um, you know, if you don't feel guilty about eating Girl Scout cookies. I no. Put it that way. No, it's all fine. It's all fine. It's all good. All right. <laughs> I don't think I have any final comments for today's show. Uh, definitely look up that that uh, Mother Jones article for those of you um, who who were interested in that earlier of the show uh, or earlier in the show. It's um, Hannah. Levin, Leventova, I think is how you pronounce her last name. It was a really interesting article, um, and it was called uh, How U.S. Evangelicals Help Create Russia's Anti-Gay Movement. It was a really interesting article, and there's a flow chart with it uh, and everything, um, and it shows you the institutional links, the financial links, and the other links that are there uh, among them. And I think, and I think that that's uh, really, really interesting. And uh, also, if you, if you do get a chance, check out that um, – that Russia Today documentary that I had mentioned to everyone uh, at the top of the show on um, on the Russian Orthodox Church and its connection with the uh, Russian state um, and uh, so on. So, and you can do a lot of research off of that. It's just it's it's just interesting to 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 look at. So, but um, all right, and uh, yeah, you can uh, find us on Facebook if you'd like. Facebook.com forward slash Dose Nation. You can find us on Twitter. Twitter.com forward slash Dose Nation. If you would uh, like to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, you can do so uh, right through um, the iTunes application. Uh, James, why don't you tell us about Stitcher? You can find Dose Nation on Stitcher. It's an app that you can download from the App Store, uh, Android or iOS, and uh, you can subscribe to your favorite shows, including Dose Nation, and create your own playlist of podcasts and radio-type content. Remember to get a copy of uh, Psychedelic Information Theory, and in addition, uh, when you do do that, um, there's we have an Amazon click-through. We have an affiliate uh, ad, so buy your books through Amazon through that uh, little credit. Helps us out a lot, gives us uh, you know, 
a little bit of uh, extra money to go on, and uh, we we always appreciate the the donations. There's a PayPal button, I believe, at the top of the website, if that's correct, James. Yep, and all the buttons are at the top of the website. Yep, and we also accept I think Bitcoin donations or something too. Uh, so well, maybe, maybe. I uh, you know, I don't think we've gotten any Bitcoin donations. No, I don't think we we have, but. Um, yeah, we 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 accept donations, so um, you can just do that at the uh, top of the um, of the page. And your generosity is appreciated. It keeps us going. It keeps our uh, costs low. It keep, allows us to get new equipment and all kinds of stuff, and to uh, bring you more interesting content. So, thanks for joining us, everybody. I'm your host, Jay Kettle, and uh, I will see you all next time. With me, as always, is founder of DoseNation.com. And author of Psychedelic Information Theory, Shamanism in the Age of Reason, James Kent. James, thank you for being here as always. Thanks a lot, Jake. All right, everybody, stay safe. Remember, stay safe, stay safe. That is the number one uh, goal. And uh, educate yourselves before you do anything, uh, anything. <laughs> and uh, stay safe and stay cool. So, uh, And make sure uh, to have a, a good, productive, and uh, happy week. So thanks for uh, tuning in. We'll catch you all next time right here on Dose Nation.